Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate, Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian, Dr. Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know just how hard it is to raise children in a technology-centric world and we want to help. So what have we got lined up for this episode, Liz? Today on the show, you're going to hear an in-depth interview with Dr. James Mookie who took advantage of his position as Australian of the Year to raise awareness about overuse of sugar, including the role of advertising in that. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out and demystify it so that it can better inform your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today, we're discussing a study from Hungary about socio-cognitive skills in preschoolers. Do touchscreen devices make a difference? So stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of Hungary about mobile use and social skills in preschoolers. Kim, why'd they do this research? Well, screens are very accessible and young children, especially preschoolers from around the age of four or five, are having earlier and earlier access to screens. And of course, parents are always worried about, is this uh, access to screens doing them uh, more harm than good? So uh, we have a lot of research on children and television screens, but we don't really know what devices like iPads and smartphones have on a growing brain. Great. So how did they go about finding out all that stuff? Well, they reached out to parents and asked them to report on their child's tablet and smartphone use, and they split them up into two groups. They got 20 children who were users who had been using screens for at least 15 minutes a day for the past year, and the other group were non-users, so they didn't have access to screens. And they conducted a few different experiments looking at their attention span and also their social skills. And one of the social skills that they tested was something called theory of mind. And theory of mind is an ability that is developed when you're around the preschool age, so around four or five years of age, you kind of realize that other people in your family actually have their own ideas and that you don't all share the same idea. And so some children who have a developmental disorder like autism may not develop their theory of mind at the appropriate age. And so what they found out was is that the children who had access to their screens from an early age, the users, they tended to have poorer theory of mind. One of the theory of mind tests that they used was actually uh, getting a box of Smarties and in the box, instead of candy, they actually had a pencil. And then they'll ask them if someone else came along, they've never seen what's inside that box before, what do you think they would think is inside the box? And of course, you and I, we're adults, we've got developed theory of mind um, areas in our brain. We would, of course, say that that strange person uh, would think that there are smarties in the box. But children without theory of mind, they would say, oh no, they'll walk walk past and say that there's a pencil in the box because I know there's a pencil in there so therefore they should know that there's a pencil inside that box. That's fascinating isn't it? Mm. Yeah we really cleverly designed very simple experiment isn't it but you can see how powerful that is to show that you know there are some kids who still think that a stranger would believe that 
that, the, that there's a pencil just because they think there's a pencil. Okay, and um, so what did they ultimately find? Who were the kids who did better on the theory of mind test than the others? Well, their theory is, is that children who didn't have access to screens, they would be spending their time with their parents, talking face-to-face, doing activities, reading their facial expressions, reading their body language, and learning the really key uh, social skills uh, when they were not accessing um, screens. And so um, there is this time displacement hypothesis. There's also maybe some other um, confounders in there, maybe parents who are overly conscientious about screens. Um, They would actually spend more time with their children and that parents who give screens might be using it as a babysitter. Yeah, so there are underlying differences in parenting and attitude to parenting. So even those parents who give their kids lots of time on screen, even if they didn't do that, the kids still might not be getting the developmental experience that other kids are getting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's always going to be that way, isn't it, with experiments? You know, you're talking about real people, life is actually so complex, but... Uh, It does sound like there's a kind of an interesting finding there that when it comes to just a basic social skill like realising that other people don't see things exactly the way you do, screen use does seem to slow that down and there there may well be others. What do you think? Do you think that one might find similar things with other social skills? Well, interestingly enough, they said that it didn't affect your ability to read emotions Mm -hmm. and so they got the children to look at a bank of facial expressions and to name those expressions. And the only one that was consistently, um, whether you were a user or non-user, was the face of disgust. Um, And little kids got confused with that facial expression. So I'm not sure whether kids are accessing videos and learning about facial expressions through the way people talk Hmm. in in the, the videos. I'm not sure. And look, that's something that we keep on coming back to, isn't it? That Content varies so greatly on screens and you know, there's things about just spending time on a screen means you're not doing other things but um, the experience that you can be having on a screen could vary greatly depending on what you're doing. So that always needs to be borne in mind with this sort of stuff as well too, isn't it? Like No one's saying don't ever give your child a screen experience but you know, maybe think about what kind of experience they're having on the screen and I'm sure that's something that these researchers would be saying, yeah, like we, we need more information about the actual screen experience and not just um, the fact that you had um, a screen in front of you. Okay, so was there anything surprising about the finding? Was it, um, does it fit with what you already knew? I guess I would have expected that the children would, who were users would have more difficulty with reading facial expressions or recognising them from a bank of faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the attention span and the theory of mind uh, deficits makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yep. And do you think that you'll be able to put this into practice you know, in your work as a psychiatrist? Is it going oh, to affect what you do? Most definitely. I mean, the World Health Organization says that you should have supervised time and you know, be sitting next to your child, kind of like when you're taking your teenager for um, their first driving uh, lesson. You know, There should be someone sitting next to them because these tablets, these screens are very powerful tools and um, can have access to a lot of different sources of information Mm. and qualities of information. So um, sitting next to your child and explaining to them what's happening and mediating any potential negative effects and explaining to them um, will set them 
off with a good start to life. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of advice that you would find yourself giving to parents of children who come to see you? Yeah, and I think uh, you know a lot of the kids that I see are on the autism spectrum and mm-hmm. the uh, best way that I can explain to them about why they might be spending so much time online is that the online world is uh, very predictable, it's very structured, it's all programmed and the, and kids on the spectrum love that. And also, you don't really need to read the facial expressions of other game players or um, understand their body language. It's people either yelling in the, in the um, game or um, interacting with you and um, there's it's much easier to start a conversation within a game because everyone is there for similar reasons. Okay, well, I'll give the details of the study that we've just been talking about and um, it'll also be in the show notes, but now it's time to move on to the next segment. So thanks, Kim. Thanks. Well, there were a couple of pretty interesting thoughts from Kim about the analogy between screen use and driving and how children on the spectrum especially are challenged when it comes to getting balance in their lives once they start using screens. The paper was by Veronica Konok and colleagues and the title is Mobile Use Induces Local Attentional Precedence and is Associated with Limited Sociocognitive Skills in Preschoolers. It was published in the journal Computers in Human Behaviour. Full details in the show notes. And now it's time for our special feature, an interview with South Australian ophthalmologist and 2020 Australian of the Year, Dr. James Mewkey. Yes, I caught up with James before he had the honour of being appointed Lieutenant Governor here in South Australia. And we talked about his campaign against sugar, including the questions he's been asking about food advertising. Well, welcome to Outside the Screen, James. Thank you, Lizzie. Nice to be here this morning. Now, what's a nice ophthalmologist like you doing in a place like this? Well, as an ophthalmologist of about 31 years now, maybe even longer, I've been dealing with the blinding consequences of diabetes. And what I've noticed over the last 30 plus years, every year I'm seeing more and more patients who are losing vision, even going blind due to their disease. I think really the moment that was deeply profound for me was a couple of years ago when I met a man who uh, suddenly woke up blind one morning uh, in both eyes. It made me sit up and realise that firstly, we need to raise awareness of the root cause of the majority of cases of diabetes, which is our poor diet. And uh, so that was the the thing that I really uh, moved forward with. And and when I won the award, uh, I got up and talked about sugar uh, in my speech and the impact of sugar in our, in our lives. Right. Well, it seems like an obvious thing for you to have picked up on there when you put it like that. It, it just, it would be the top of anybody's list, wouldn't it? As an ophthalmologist, what do you think is important and where you think you can make a difference? So, you know, that really makes a lot of sense. Um, but then when you start talking about the fact that uh, you zeroed in on sugar, I'm starting to wonder, did you get any kind of resistance or pushback in relation to that? Oh, absolutely. So when I received my award on the Australia Day weekend, early 2020, literally that week I had trolls coming after me. I also received uh, an invitation for the CEO of the Beverages Council of South Australia who wanted to talk to me. He was 
calling me misguided. There seems to have been this sense of, you, know, you, you might be an eminent eye surgeon, but that we need to set you straight rather than, oh, gee, we better listen to what this guy has to say because he has spent his whole life studying health-related things. Now, coming back to the pushback that you received, how have you managed that? How have you responded within yourself or publicly? It kind of hit me hard early on and uh, it's not my natural space. I'm not a confrontational person. After the initial shock, and I realised that these were people who were on some sort of agenda. And so some of the actual comments were quite laughable. So in the end, I ended up not taking them seriously and really just laughing at them and thinking, oh, the poor people that they have to... Yeah. They have to spend their lives trolling other people who are trying to make a difference in the world. But there was definitely a, a low level of anxiety that I had throughout the year. And I've got, I've got stronger as a result of that. And rather than it erode my personality and my gumption, I suppose, it, it's actually built my resolve. And I feel stronger as a result. I think ultimately this is something that I needed to do. And, and we're starting to kick some goals down and see some positive results. So it's quite exciting. Okay, so what are the positive results? I did meet with the CEO of Australia Post because I noticed that post offices had sugary products at checkout counters as well. And uh, she was very much on board and she has now removed sugary products from over 700 of their corporate Australia Post stores. So that was a big win, I felt, for, mm. for, for my uh, role. So what happened when you approached the government regulator about the children's television standards? Yeah, so I wrote to the broadcasting body that's responsible for, for that uh, process and really had no luck whatsoever. I pointed out, you know, this predatory marketing to children on TV during those hours that are watching, and they invited me to submit my concerns to the review process, but there was no real incentive to, to address that. And so that was yeah. a little frustrating. So really I've been met with a lot of smoke screens yeah. uh, and, and really very little action and ultimately, um, you know, terribly frustrating scenario. And mm -hmm. another thing that people just inherently know is that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I actually gave a community presentation to a group of several hundred people uh, in a rural area of South Australia recently. And I said, put your hand up if you've heard the expression, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And, and virtually everyone in the audience put their hand up. So this phrase was actually coined in 1906 by John Harvey Kellogg. Fancy. To market, <laughs> yeah, to market his newly invented breakfast cereal cornflakes. Right. So it must be surely the one of the most enduring marketing campaigns ever. And yet there's not a shred of evidence to say that we must have breakfast. Indeed, many of us will do better by not having cereal for breakfast each morning. And at the same time, the environment that we live in just has so many of those things in it that you can't walk into a shop without seeing a wall of sugary stuff and high carb snacks are very, very prominent in supermarkets and petrol stations and other places that you go. And it just feeds that impression that we get from childhood that this is how the world works. This is what's needed. There's so much of it there. It must be there for a reason. It just normalises those things in our mind yeah, when they're exactly, exactly what we don't need. Yeah. Absolutely. It has been normalised and that's quite extraordinary. Now, as an eye surgeon, do you have any other concerns about children's media use apart from the exposure to unhealthy food advertising? 
It does concern me. I mean, I know myself, and particularly with the social media that I've been involved in, so I open these, these platforms to be able to share my messages, and it becomes phenomenally addictive. I know I spend a ridiculous amount of time every day on social media, and it does worry me the time that, that our children are spending sort of glued to those mm. phones. I remember when I was a, a schoolboy, the bag had barely hit the floor and you're out the backyard or down at the park kicking the ball. Uh, and, and yet I don't see that as much uh, with the children of today. I think it's really critical for them to get outside, get out into the open air, because that's so important on so many different levels. Um, so you know, that's something I would strongly encourage. That's something that does concern me. Now, I was also going to ask you about your adult children. You've had your own experience as a parent. So how was it for you managing their media use when they were growing up? Is there anything you do differently now, for example? Oh, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because when their peer group revolves around social media, when so much of their lives revolves around social media, uh, it's hard to... to you know, I think one of the things that we did was just make sure that they didn't have their phones at the dinner table. Um, but you know, they certainly spent a lot of time in front of the TV playing uh, games, uh, which did trouble me. I'd much rather have been outside, but it was a very difficult thing to break. I, I, I don't think I managed it very well, unfortunately. Uh, I, I, I should have been a bit more hard line and, and literally got them to go outside and lock the door on them. But uh, you know, occasionally... <laughs> Occasionally, I get them out into the backyard and into the pool or to kick a ball, and you know, a few minutes later, they'd be back inside in front of the TV again. So it was a bit of a losing battle for me. So, just one last question: What do you feel most optimistic about? I'm really optimistic that patients with type two diabetes, and there's now about 1.7 million in this country, have an option to put their disease into remission. Mm -hmm. And we now have a number of patients who, uh, who are just having fabulous results. They're seeing better. They're feeling better. Uh, one of my patients said he's never felt better in his life. It's, it's, it's quite literally life-changing. Well, that's a lot to be optimistic about. So, um, James Mookie, thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you around. Thanks again, Lizzie. Yeah, luckily I'm a positive, optimistic person. Now. Yeah. I think we're going to get through this. Yeah. It may take a few more decades. I may not see it in my lifetime, but I reckon we'll get there. Well, you're making a difference, I'm sure. Great interview there, Liz. Yeah. Um, Dr. James Muirke, uh, very inspirational for me because we both spoke on the TEDx stage in 2015 at Adelaide Town Hall in front of 600 people on the same day. Huh, and yeah. uh, also um, Taryn Brumfit, who also is a TEDx Adelaide speaker. She mm -hmm. is now the current Australian of the Year talking right. about how um, society and culture uh, need to rethink about how we view our bodies. Mm. Well, we've got a bit of a production line going here in South Australia, haven't we? Who could be next? Let's see, Kim, hey? <laughs> yeah, well, Dr. Richard Harris and then Dr. Mielke and then Yeah. Yeah, it yes. could be you, Liz. Or it could be you. Well, could be <laughs> anybody. Let's just watch this space, hey? Anyway, yes, it was lovely to catch up with James. He's a delightful human being, as you could tell from the interview, and as you say, very inspirational. So it was a real pleasure to get to chat with him. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode six. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch either through our Facebook page or you can email us at outsidethescreenpod at gmail.com. 
You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on my website, cgiclinic.com, or even book an appointment for uh, your child to see me online. Yes. And if you really like us, you can help by becoming a subscriber on Substack. Details are in the show notes, along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. And finally, you can rate and review our show on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. And this this has been been the team from Outside the Screen. See you next week.